Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Awake to Oneness Radio. I am Caroline Chang, your host. The mission of Awake to Oneness Radio is to inspire the world to awaken to the universal truth of oneness. Science and spirituality are both telling us that we are connected. We are all one. So what you do to another person, you're literally doing to another aspect of yourself. And when the world awakens to the universal truth of oneness, there will be peace on earth. Today's show topic is Finding Inner Peace in a Chaotic World with Emily Hine. I learned about Emily and her work um, through the Shift Network. Um, She has been um, the chief of peace for the Shift Network, um, and she has also um, hosted a global event with the Dalai Lama and um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, launching a worldwide compassion movement. Welcome so much uh, to Awake to Oneness Radio. Emily, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Oh, thank you so much, Caroline. It's really my pleasure and honor to be with you tonight. Thanks so much for inviting me. Well, thank you. Um, I also wanted to mention to our listeners that you have been working in this field of bringing global peace to the world for over 25 years. And if you can maybe share your journey, your story um, with our listeners um, on the work that you're doing and also um, how you, you know, started doing this work. Sure, I'm happy to. And I'll tell you what, I'll give you kind of the the shorter version, and then you can let me know where you'd like me to elaborate. Sure. So I, I think that the most important part of my becoming an ambassador of peace and compassion in the world came from my parents. Uh, they were both uh, and still are alive. They're both civil servants. My mother was a prominent politician. Um, after she gave birth to six of us kids, she went into politics and became the mayor of the town I grew up in and then a state representative, and then uh, she worked as the chief of staff for the governor of uh, my home state of Washington. And and my father was also a civil servant, um, volunteering to uh, work with the city. Um, he was a city engineer for a while in the town I grew up in, and um, he gave a lot of time and energy to the Catholic Church. I was raised in the Catholic religion. And so I watched as my parents really contributed to the world in meaningful ways, in addition to raising a family and having their day jobs. And so that, that, that installation of service came at a young age. Um, as I grew up, I was blessed to go to private schools as well. And I, I was raised Catholic and went to private schools. And what I appreciate so much about that is not so much the dogma of what I received, but the sense of faith, the sense of there's something greater than us. And I I really identified with some of the spiritual masters. Eventually, as I grew older, I I didn't resonate with the church, so I actually left the Catholic Church, but I kept that sense of spirituality. 
And I also took that sense of service with me into my jobs. For example, my first job out of college was with a nonprofit organization in Seattle called United Way of King County. And my job was to raise money for health and human service organizations such as homeless shelters and domestic violence organizations and um, the like. So there was a sense of service in my profession. And then I was incredibly blessed to be recruited over to Microsoft. And at Microsoft, I also was able to be of service raising money for nonprofit organizations within the context of a corporate setting. And that was really cool because we had a lot more resources to do some very innovative programs We partnered with national organizations around the globe. And my job was really to inspire employees to give back to the nonprofits of their choice. And it was fantastic. And people really felt a sense of contribution. Well, interestingly enough, the corporate sector itself did not feed my soul. And um, what really happened, Caroline, that I think was the pivot point for me was actually Mm 9-11. And... I like a lot of people, 9-11 deeply affected me. And what was so challenging was watching the world respond to that uh, horrific tragedy. And I saw kind of two disparate responses. You know, the first was, you know, people acting out in, you know, kind of hatred and fear and vengeance. And, and that was dominating the media. But then there was this whole other group of people, a second group of people, that was responding with compassion and love and kindness. And it was right after 9-11 that I chose to leave the corporate sector and dedicate my life to being part of that second group of people who responded with love and service and compassion. And, and that's really, that was the pivot point for me. And so everything I did from that point forward in my life has been about how do we increase peace and how do we increase compassion, especially on a planet that is, you know, relatively chaotic by our own making, of course. And so how do we hold up those pillars of peace and compassion in the face of a chaotic world? And so that was really the pivot point, the change for me, the shift, and the recognition that I could complain about the state of the world or I could step into a larger sense of I have responsibility for this. And, and just as you said, you know, I, I awoke in, to our oneness at that point and recognize that if I took action in my life in this way, I might be able to inspire others to do the same. And then our collective oneness becomes more conscious, more kind, more compassionate, and more peaceful. And so um, I can tell you a little bit more from there that led me to work with the Dalai Lama, but I want to pause and just see questions about what I've shared so far. Oh, that that's amazing. I um, listening to you. I just feel like I'm identifying so much with what you just said. Um, I did go to Catholic school. I, you know, but I didn't resonate with the dogma. But um, and I I did work for the corporate in the corporate world um, for a software company. So a lot of what you <laughs> shared, <laughs> a lot of what you just shared, really hit home for me. Um, so. Just no, no, continue on, and um, especially I, I love it when you'll be able to share with us the um, your experience with the Dalai Lama and the global event that you hosted and how that sure. all came about. Sure. Uh, it's a great story. <laughs> I think you'll like this. It has a nice blend of kind of esoteric events and, um, and world life practicalities. 
Um, here's what happened. When I left Microsoft in, let's see, it was 2002, I had a bit more time to meditate, which I desperately needed after working in the high-tech sector. And so I learned Vipassana mindfulness meditation. And then I learned some other meditations that were a, a little more esoteric. Um, you may have heard of these before, meet your spirit guide meditations. And I, I sat in a, a group with one of my teachers, Hope Van Vliet, who is a, a spiritual intuitive. And I just met her recently, and I decided to go to one of her workshops, which was about meeting your spirit guides. And as I sat in the workshop and she had walked us through meditation and a visualization to meet our spirit guides, and I have to tell you, I was a little skeptical because you know, I, I know I had friends that believed in angels and these things, but I, you know, to me I was a little bit more, no, I don't know, I've never seen one, I don't know about this. But here mm-hmm. I was in this workshop in Seattle and Hope walks us through a guided meditation and the spirit guide that showed up for me after the visualization, right in the middle of the visualization, you know, she took us through this you know, process, through, through the sky and the mansion. And as I knocked on the door of this mansion, the door opened, and, and it was Jesus at, on the inside of the door. And as I saw him, Caroline, I swear, it was like a reunion. And I mm. felt a visceral connection, and I, I felt him. Like, I really sensed that he was present, and I thought, well, this is weird. You know, I didn't really believe in this kind of thing. But the engagement that I had with him was so visceral, I couldn't not believe it. So that was the first time I had that meditation, um, and several times I kept going back to this place in meditation, and several times I had different teachers show up. Jesus was there. The Pope would show up. And then the Dalai Lama would start showing up, and I would literally have these educational sessions with them. They would teach me about, you know, controlling my anger so that I could hear better. Um, they would teach me that we're all one. In fact, I, rem- I remember this one particular meditation that I think you'll really appreciate, where I was brought into this room, and on one side of me was Jesus, and on the other side of me was the Dalai Lama. Now, this is all happening in a meditative state. I can't really, I don't make these kinds of things up. I don't think I'm that creative. (laughs) But here we were. I'm sitting on the couch between these two spiritual masters, and all of a sudden, all three of us turned to bright lights, just beams of light shooting straight up. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. And then what they showed me is those lights merging towards the top of Mm -hmm. kind of the room that we were in. And I got it at a visceral level. I got, oh, we're all one. I get, they were showing me we're all one. I thought, well, this is cool. And then I got, right after that, I got, because I think I was going through a tough time, that my light was a little dim. You know, I was watching my light dim in comparison to theirs. And what I got was when I dim my own light, whether it's through my thought processes or creating unnecessary chaos in my life or um, anxiety, depression, worry, when I dim my own light, I am jipping the whole team. And the members of my team include you, the people who are listening to this podcast. It includes Jesus, the Dalai Lama, uh, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King. It includes all lights that have ever shown on this planet and that currently shine. And so I don't want to do anything to dim my light. So that was profound. And what I recognized is that in these interactions I was having in meditation, I was being softly guided to do more for peace and compassion. The message from Jesus was about peace. 
and the message from the Dalai Lama was about compassion. And so I thought, okay, I'll look for those opportunities in my real life, in the three-dimensional world. Well, right away, what showed up for me was an opportunity to volunteer with the Peace Alliance, which is a nonprofit organization that's helping to create a United States Department of Peace. And so all of a sudden, recognizing that I was called to do this work and kind of sensing the guidance of Jesus, the Dalai Lama, and other spiritual masters, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to dive deeper into this. And I joined the Peace Alliance as a volunteer. I went to Washington, D.C., and I lobbied to help create a United States Department of Peace. I felt so passionate about it, and I still do, um, that we need to create uh, structures to support our peace efforts, just as we have structures that support our war efforts. So I was very passionate about the cause, and I, and I still am. And I did that for a while. And then some crazy coincidences happened, but we know there's not really coincidences. I sure. was called to, to do some work with, um, went to a conference with the Points of Light Foundation. And at this time I was, I was consulting back with Microsoft on volunteer programs, and I was helping some nonprofits in the local area with large capital campaigns and raising money for them and, and um, anyway, I went to this Points of Light conference and met a woman there who uh, I had talked about my passion for peace and compassion and volunteerism. And she looked me in the eye. She didn't really know me very well. And she said, Emily, I want you to come to India. And I want you to speak at this conference on volunteering <clears throat> for global peace. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's interesting. Okay, why not? So I went to India gave this thing a presentation on 11-11 was the date. And I um, had an amazing experience there and felt very on path, right? I'd been traveled to India. I'd met with uh, Points of Light. I'd, I'd worked in Washington, D.C. as a volunteer. I'm on point, right? And I thought, you know what? Here's an, something interesting. The Dalai Lama lives in India. Why don't I go see him? Because he's the only living spiritual master that was showing up in my meditations. And so I had this deep desire to see what it would be like to see him in person, right? And I have to tell you, before this time, I wasn't really following the teachings of the Dalai Lama, but I appreciated who he was. I knew of him, and I appreciated who he was. So I found my way up to uh, McLeod Ganj or Dharamsala, India, up in the Himalayas. And here's, here's what's fascinating, Caroline. I didn't have any plans. I had nothing, I had no idea how I was going to make anything happen once I got there. But through a series of serendipitous events, within 12 hours I was standing six feet from the Dalai Lama. Wow, that's amazing. I, I thought, how does this happen? How does this happen? And so I had, you know, one of those moments where I, I literally sobbed. It was like, I imagine it's how a teenager felt when the Beatles were very popular and they were at a concert in front of them. It was that kind of feeling of just, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I'm here. I cannot believe I'm this close to this amazing spiritual master who I've seen in meditation but never seen in person. And here, here I am, standing six feet from him. And in that course of my time in India, I, I saw him again and was invited to participate in a puja ceremony with several other monks and nuns uh, at his temple. And uh, again, he passed by me and there was this visceral connection and eye contact. And I thought, this is fascinating. I don't know why this is happening, but it's clearly there's a reason for it. And, and mind you, I had met people that lived in that same town of uh, McLeod Ganch who had spent four months or more in that town and never seen the Dalai Lama. And I was there 12 hours and had this uncanny access. Well, it gets more bizarre. 
about, mm, I guess it was six months later, maybe not even that, because that was in 2006. No, that was, yeah, that was in 2006. Yes, a few months later in 2007, I received this um, random email from a girlfriend of mine named Sonia who knew about my trip to see the Dalai Lama and to India. And the title of the email was, Emily, the Dalai Lama's Calling. <laughs> and I read the email, and she said, Emily, there's this great foundation. They're hosting an event in Seattle called Seeds of Compassion. They're bringing the Dalai Lama to town for five days, and I think you're supposed to work on this. Yes. Now, I had been interviewing with another foundation at the time and was just on the brink of accepting a position with them. And this just stopped me in my tracks. And I thought, absolutely, I have to do this. There's no question. You know, Caroline, it was, it's very rare. At that point in my life, it was very rare where my spiritual, my personal, my professional lives all came together and I had to follow the thread, even if I didn't know where it was going to take me. So I went and I interviewed with this organization called Seeds of Compassion, and uh, within 24 hours they offered me the, the position as their um, one of their senior directors on the project. I was one of five executive team members, and our job was to bring the Dalai Lama to Seattle for this event for five days the following uh, spring, and we were highlighting the importance of compassion and the importance and particularly of teaching compassion at a young age, um, this, is, this is in coordination with social and emotional learning. Um, we learned a lot about how a child's brain before the age of five is deeply, deeply influenced and that that is a great time to start to teach uh, these compassion practices and, and formulate a compassion brain, if you will, for children. So we hosted this, we you know, went to town um, getting ready to host this event and in about you know, nine short months, uh, we had raised about $9 million, half in cash, half in in-kind. We, uh, we wanted the events to be free. That was important for all of us. Um, in many Dalai Lama events, um, some, oftentimes there can be times when it's not accessible to some. So we raised the money in order to invite children in particular to come and attend the events for free, children and their parents. And we have these events for five days. You know, one whole day was devoted to kids, and the Dalai Lama met with these 12,000 children in the Kyrena Stadium of Seattle. The next day we had 50,000 people in this ginormous football stadium, um, the Seahawks, where the Seahawks play, which incidentally my mother helped build. She was on the committee that helped create this, this whole, um, uh, you know, the stadium, the football stadium right. in Seattle. And, and as I walked into the stadium, I had premonitions of this event, by the way. I didn't even tell you that in another meditation. And uh, so as I walked into the stadium, this premonition I had came true, and I saw 50,000 people. And my brother looked at me. I was with some of my family members. I, I was working, but I stopped in to see one my family. And, and my brother looked at me, and he said, uh, Ma Mother built it, and Emily filled it. <laughs> so my, my mom helped build the stadium, and I helped raise the money for all these people to come for free. It was extraordinary. Yeah, and, and then I'll tell you, and, and then I'll pause. The biggest event for me was the very next day. I had been invited to host a, a talk with the Dalai Lama and global leaders in philanthropy on compassion and philanthropy. So 
I had been invited to moderate this panel with the Dalai Lama, and I thought, this is crazy. How did I get here? You know, it's not like I'm a professional anchor person. It's not like I, you know, do all this for a living. But um, the organization recognized my leadership and said, Emily, we think you should host this conversation. So I thought, okay, well, I'm being called up. I, I better shine my light. I better not jip the team. So I stepped up to the plate, and I had so many people supporting me, so many wonderful friends and volunteers helping me prepare questions for the Dalai Lama and helping me figure out, you know, how to, how to orchestrate the conversation. And I got to tell you, it was one of the best professional moments of my life when we, he walked on stage with his interpreter, Thupten Jimpa, and then we had global leaders from the Gates Foundation, the Seattle Foundation, uh, from Thrive by Five, and then we had a young philanthropist. And we had this amazing conversation, and it was so fun to sit with His Holiness and to you know, exchange some humorous stories. And I told him, I said, Your Holiness, you know, the first time I saw you was in India. I said, you won't remember me, but I was standing six feet from you, and I had a very visceral response to being in your presence. And I looked at him, and I leaned in, and I said, and I got to tell you, Your Holiness, not many men have that kind of impact on me. <laughs> and, oh, wow. and, you know, it, and, and so we had a little chuckle about that, and, um, and the, the conversation went beautifully. And here's what I said to him at the very end. One of my friends, Mary, suggested that I ask him this question, and it was perfect. And I said, Your Holiness, we've gathered people together for five days of events on compassion, and we have over 150,000 people attending these events in person. And then we have another, I think it was close to 70 million who watched the webcast. I said, we truly have started a global compassion movement. What is the single most important thing we can do to keep that movement going? And he said, compassion education. We must have compassion education. And I said to him, we will. We absolutely will. We will continue on and we will educate the world about compassion. So I, in that moment, made a commitment to him. Now, I was already dedicated to peace through Mm -hmm. kind of my commitment there, and now I've made a commitment to compassion and further anchoring what I call my two spiritual pillars, one of peace and one of compassion. And so from that moment forward, um, my life took a completely um, extraordinary turn um, that I'll go into in a few minutes. But I just want to stop again and pause and see if you have any reflections that you'd like to share from what I what I just shared with you. Well, your story is so amazing. Um, I think you and I both know um, there are no co- coincidences. And <laughs> like you said, when you start to follow your spirit, you don't know where it's going to lead. But it, it's always amazing. You know, you have no idea. And it, it's so... It just everything you said resonated so much with me. Um, the whole idea of having this event in Seattle and having it free, having mm-hmm. it open to the public and free, that um, is a big part of what um, my vision is for. Um, I'm starting a nonprofit foundation in my son's honor, um, the Kyle Foundation. And Kyle stands for not just my son's name, but keep your light expanding. And my my vision for the Kyle Foundation is to open a community center that will have uh, seminars, workshops, um, everything free, 
nothing, you know, um, where people can come. Everything, the whole center, the whole foundation will run on donations and grants, and and people can come and see a lecture, hear a lecture, hear a, a speaker, maybe even get to meet the Dal- Dalai Lama for free. So that that resonates so much with me. It's um, but like and like you said, when you start to walk in your spirit, just following it, you have no idea how you're going to, you you have that vision, but you don't know how you're going to get there, but when you follow spirit, you will get there. So that's so amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that amazing story with us. Of, of course, and it's my pleasure, and, and thank you so much for um, what you're doing with the Kyle Foundation. And, you know, I read about your story, Caroline, and the extraordinary um, uh journey you went on with your son and you know how incredibly challenging that must have been for you but um, as I read your story what came shining through so beautifully was your courage was your faith uh, was your commitment to keeping the light you know shining and Mm -hmm. um, and so I just really appreciate that you are taking um his memory and making it such a beautiful uh, illustration of his light and your light and that it will live on and on and on and on. So thank you for for dedicating yourself in this very beautiful way and then providing those tools for others for free. It's it's really priceless that you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you. I I feel it's, it's so important for this information to reach the masses and by, you know, just freely offering it is the best way to reach the masses. So that's, mm-hmm. um, that's just, uh, you know, what's in my passion <laughs> to mm-hmm. do. So thank you so much. And what you're doing is such a, you know, you and so many others have, you know, paved the way, <laughs> you know. Oh, so mm-hmm. wonderful. So, well, I can, I can tell you us more. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, now, now it gets interesting. <laughs> okay. So, um, as you said, uh, living a spirit-led life, but you never really know exactly where you're going to be guided next. And I was guided to ultimately leave Seattle. Um, uh, the organization that I've been working with, Future Compassion, had merged with some other organizations, and we'd had an anniversary event, and we brought in uh, – Karen Armstrong. Armstrong. Karen Armstrong is the founder of the Charter for Compassion, which I think if you if you don't know about this, this or if your listeners don't know about it, it's an extraordinary resource. Uh, Karen won the TED Prize, the TED Talk Prize in 2008, and as mm-hmm. a theologian, her mission is really to uh, her mission was to bring together a universal expression of the golden rule, which is really the common denominator between all religions. And so she created the Charter for Compassion, which is essentially you do unto others as you would have done to you. It's it's about this same kind of oneness concept that you are so beautifully expressing through this program. And so um, through that, met Karen Armstrong, and, and we kind of relaunched some different initiatives in Seattle. But I felt it was time for me to move on. I felt that there was some other mission or some other way I was supposed to step into my leadership roles with peace and compassion. And it was in that time I was working on a book 
and I went down to San Diego and uh, to take a writing conference, and, and I met Stephen Dynan, the CEO of the Shift Network, and mm-hmm. I just knew I was supposed to connect with him, and so I approached him, and, and um, anyway, we ended up having dinner, and long story short, he said, you know, uh, we need more um, female leaders on our team, and I'd love to invite you to come to Shift and participate with us, and so I essentially created my own role, and the role was the Chief of Peace. <laughs> and I created the title um, because I know how powerful titles can be, especially in the corporate sector. You, you know this as well. Um, when I was at Microsoft, Steve Ballmer had created a title called Chief Evangelical Officer, and I remember it just it created a vibration in that company of, of, of kind of energy and power and connection. It just elevated the status uh, of how we talked about our products and services, and I thought, wow, I want something like that, a C-suite position that is for peace. And so I created the title Chief of Peace and in, intentionally to kind of raise the vibration and also with hopes that other corporations might one day have Chief of Peace, um, people who are responsible for uh, the inner peace of their organization. And so I did that, but here's what happened. Um, I, was, I was helping to uh, – I co-created this program with James O.D., who was the former – um, head of Amnesty International in Washington, D.C. And if you don't know James O.D., he's been a powerful peacemaker. And he was our lead faculty member for a program called the Peace Ambassador Training Program. And, um, and so James and I kind of kicked off that program in 2010, 2011. And then I hired Philip, who you interviewed on your, your program. Philip Helmick is the director of Peace at Shift Network. And, mm-hmm. um, and we were doing some great work in peace. And then here's the... Here's where my, my life took another crazy turn. Um, six months after moving down from Seattle to Northern California where the Shift Network offices are, I received a cancer diagnosis. And this was just, you know, i got to tell you, very rarely have I done the why me question. <laughs> you know, okay. this, was, this was like, really, God? I, you know, I'm here to do good work on the planet. Why would you, you know, why would you give me this one? You know, I'm healthy. I eat well. I exercise. Why? And right. so I, but but here's what was interesting is literally, I think it was about two hours after my, I got the phone call from my doctor's office, and it was on October 5th, 2011, the same day that Steve Jobs uh, from Apple had passed away uh, oh. from his, loss of cancer and, and mm-hmm. everything was up in the up in the news about that and so I got diagnosed that day he died and I got diagnosed and wow. it, this is rele- relevant to the story because I'll tell you what happened two hours later I'm sitting in my car in this town of San Rafael California and I'm crying because I, I just can't believe this happening it's I have a stage I was diagnosed with stage two uterine cancer and so I'm sitting in my car crying like, like one might after a diagnosis like this. And this little old lady knocks on my window of my car. And so I roll down the window and I said, you know, yes. And she said, how's your day going, dear? <laughs> I said, um, not, not so good. And she said, yes, I saw you crying. She said, um, she said um, what's going on? And I said, well, I, I may have, a, you know, I'm getting a cancer diagnosis. And she she kind of got excited it was the strangest thing and she said she said to me oh oh well do you believe in God and I said yes and she said do you believe in Jesus and I kind of looked at her and I said well yes he's, he's been one of my guides for a while and 
um, you know, he doesn't seem to be upset that I left the Catholic Church, so it seems to be working out. And she said, well, this is just Jesus giving you an opportunity to surrender. You haven't fully surrendered to God yet. And she said, and, and she said, that, she says that, and you need to drink kombucha tea. <laughs> she said, it helps, you know, this man created kombucha tea, helped his mother heal from breast cancer. And she said, and I've been with Mother Teresa, and I'm going to give you a hug, get out of the car, dear, and we're going to talk about this. And I looked at her, and I, I just thought, this is crazy. But I looked at her, and she's wearing this angel pin on her sweater, Caroline. And I'm thinking yeah. to myself, all these crazy things that have happened in my life, these signs and meditations, this is one of them, but it's in the form of this, you know, silver-haired lady whose name, by the way, was Maria. <laughs> and, and so I get out. She gives me a hug, and she says, I have some kombucha tea in my car. Why don't we share some? And so I'm like, of course you do. So she gets the kombucha tea, gets into my car. We're sitting there and sharing this tea, and I'm still in shock. And she said, wow. she repeated again to me. She said, um, she said, you know, she said, this is an opportunity for you to further surrender. And she said, don't have surgery. She said, you need to eat great organic food. She said, you need to drink kombucha tea, and you need to surrender to God, and you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so I'm sitting there like, really? This is my prescription? Like, huh. And uh, so anyway, long story short, um, I did meet with my surgeon. I did meet, meet with the surgeon who recommended that I have my uterus removed and my fallopian tubes, and then I do radiation. And I, 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 you know, no offense to the surgeon, but abs- the answer was crystal clear in my body: absolutely not. And so I thought about this woman Maria, and I thought this was my prescription from my my guides, and it was my job to follow that prescription to the best of my ability. Now, here's what I believe: I believe that. We are all made for miracles. We are. And it takes a huge collaboration with spirit. You know, we've got to do our part. We've got to do our 50%, as my friend Hope says, and then spirit comes in for the remaining 50%. And so what I did is I seriously pedal to the metal, researched everything I could on how people heal from cancer, and I found some very common denominators. Um, And I'll just highlight a few one was to detox your body. We carry around such a toxic load from the environment and foods and that kind of thing. And so to, eat, to detox is um, one of the things we can do to reduce the toxic load so that our bodies can fight off cancer. Uh, cutting out sugar, eating a raw vegan diet, alkalinizing the body, um, high doses of vitamin C, pancreatic enzymes, many of these things can help us detox the body. So I did all that and I went to a place called Optimum Health Institute, and I detoxed further there, wheatgrass, shots, wheatgrass enemas, for goodness sakes. I did everything I could. And, um, and I also had a miracle healing, which I won't go into in this call unless you choose to ask me about it a little bit later. But I want to give you the high level, which is I did all that I could do. I had mm-hmm. visitations from Jesus yoga, and Yogananda confirming my path. And... Um, and I had a spiritual surgery happen with Jesus that I cannot, I cannot explain any other way than it was an absolute miracle and I had physical evidence that the surgery occurred and, and then I went into meditation and I asked Jesus if he had done this miracle surgery and he said absolutely and he said, 
you know, you need to continue to do your part, eat a raw vegan diet, get tested in a couple months, and you'll be fine. And by the way, that meditation was also on 11-11-11, which is a significant number. This 11-11 kept coming up throughout all of my spiritual journey and path. Anyway, so I did as he prescribed, and um, here's what's also interesting, Caroline, when I read your story, I was also in the hospital uh, on Christmas of December 2011. Wow. And... Yeah, and when I read your story about your son's hospitalization and yours, I thought, isn't this interesting? Um, I had, I had a, a a big, huge scare. I was, I had a fever of unknown origin, and this was as I was doing my healing. I, I was working with a doctor. We were, I was taking a lot of supplementation, and so I was being observed and watched while I did all of the natural things I could do to heal. I did what I could under her guidance. Anyway, whatever I was doing, something happened that, that created this fever in my body. And I literally, I had to check myself into the hospital. I had a fever of 105.4, which is incredibly dangerous for an adult level. Adult. And, oh, gosh, I had the rigors, the shakes. It was awful. Worst I've, I think I've ever felt. And, um, but I knew, you know, they could not figure out what was wrong with me. But I thought, I'm checking in on Christmas Eve with a fever of 105.4. And I'm in the hospital on, you know, on the uh, celebrated birth of Christ. And then the next day, December 26th, is my birthday. And I recognize that this was some sort of rebirth happening here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not like I've done a lot of studies about that kind of thing. But intuitively, they could not figure out what was wrong with me. But intuitively, I knew. This was the rest of the cancer being, um, you know, basically uh, it fired out of my body. The fever yeah. was killing the rest of the virus, if that's, if that's what you want to call it. Uh, mm-hmm. Because they, they couldn't, they had no other explanation. So you're in the hospital, your son was in the hospital, I was in the hospital, and there was a huge awakening from that experience. And, um, and I got out three days later after Christmas, after my birthday, uh, fever went down, um, and then I... It, by then, it had been close to a couple months, and so I sensed that uh, that meditation with Jesus. So I went and I, I got tested again to see where I was with this uh, uterine cancer. And so I was diagnosed in October of 2011. Now it's January of 2012. Mm-hmm. And I got the call from my doctor the week after my test, and she said, Emily, are you sitting down? And I said, yes. And she said, you have no cancer left. We can't find any evidence of it. Wow. Amazing. And I just fell to my knees. Honestly, Caroline, I thought, wow, this miracle just happened. You know, I just was able to heal with the help of spirit from stage two cancer in four months without surgery, without radiation, without chemotherapy. This is a freaking miracle. And I know it's because... I followed the signs that I was given, which took a tremendous amount of faith, tremendous right. amount of faith. And so, anyway, that is, that's the cancer journey. And if I could share anything with anybody about that journey, it's, it's two things. You know, one is keep the faith. When we do our 50%, when we do our, our part to say, yes, I want to stay on the planet. Yes, I want to live. Yes, I want to be of service. When we do our 50%, Spirit comes in and does spirits 50%, which really is more like 98%, but we think it's 50%. And, and the healings can occur. So that's one thing. 
is is that keeping the faith, do your part, spirit does spirit's part, and we meet in the middle and we're healed and we can move on to be of service in the world. And the second part, which I think is resonant for you too, this is a message that my doctor who helped treat me for cancer said to me. She said, Emily, she said, your mess becomes your message. Mm-hmm. Yes. Your mess becomes your message. And I thought, isn't that the truth? I had claimed this title as Chief of Peace with the Shift Network, a consciousness raising company, and then boom, six months later, my inner peace gets challenged, completely challenged. And I recognized that I needed to do more work to heal myself, to become more peaceful inside before I could really teach it outside in the world. And my mess did become my message. I recognized that really to achieve inner peace is not only to have, you know, a healthy body, but it's also to have a healthy mind and it's to heal the emotional wounds that cause us to be less than peaceful. It's to control our thinking in such a way that we can direct our lives in a positive way that is of service. So your mess becomes your message. I now focus my teaching on inner peace and compassion. And, um, and, I'll, and I'll tell you um, that since this time, you know, I have gone back to school to become certified. I went to school uh, at Stanford. Stanford has an amazing program um, called the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education. It's C-Care for short. While I was in the Bay, I went back to school and I took their Compassion Cultivation Teacher Training Program. By the way, that curriculum, that protocol, was written by Thupten Jimpa, the Dalai Lama's interpreter, who was on the stage that day back in 2008 when I committed to expanding compassion education. And so um, now I've learned his protocol and now I'm certified to teach compassion. I teach peace at the Shift Network. I teach compassion um, from this program called uh, the the Compassion Cultivation Training Program through the Stanford School of Medicine. And so I teach peace and I teach compassion and I also, to um, further my commitment to the Dalai Lama, I host the Global Compassion Summit. Uh, Last year was the first year I did this as part of the Shift Network's Summer of Peace. And my colleague, Philip Helmick, who has just been a dear friend and ally and colleague through all of this, you know, when I got my cancer diagnosis, he carried everything for me. And, and basically, I took a leave of absence and didn't go back. And Philip, Philip just stepped up, and he is a beautiful director of peace for the Shift Network now. And he and I collaborate on an effort called the Summer of Peace. And within the context of that Summer of Peace, I do this Global Compassion Summit. So here I am in the world, so blessed to do what I was created to do, which is teach peace and compassion uh, to students all over the world and to turn my mess into my message to help others who are suffering in any kind of way, whether it's from cancer or abuse or sexual trauma or depression. You know, these are all things that so many of us deal with. And I myself have had some struggles with depression, which is huge in our society. Over a million people are diagnosed literally every year with depression. And we've got to do what we can to help people find their light again. So I feel very blessed to have lived the life that I have so far and that I'm healthy and well and able to be with you today, Caroline, and to teach peace and compassion and and really, like you, do my part to uh, share the light in the world. So... Uh, that's that's kind of where we are today in, in my life. So thanks for asking. That was such an amazing story that I know so many people like myself and everyone that is listening to this program live and who will listen to 
to this program in the future are going to be inspired because, you know, you really touched upon your life as an example, and you've touched upon so many things that will be that will resonate and help so many others to really find that inner peace, like you say, that in, inner peace. And starting at a young age, that whole um, answer that the Dalai Lama gave you about teaching compassion, starting to teach compassion at a, a younger age, there was something that just happened locally um, in the small town that I live in, in, to, in the Poconos today. Uh, a young man, 18 years old, um, was arrested in the high school with a loaded gun. And um, there was a lot of chatter on the um, news blogs about it. So I just piped in that, you know, this is kind of symptomatic of the society that we live in, that we're raising our children, our babies, on violence. I said, have you seen all the violence in cartoons? You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and I got, you know, I kind of got, took a little heat, yeah. Well, you, but I'm, th- I'm not blaming, I'm not point. I'm not pointing the finger. I'm saying this is a society problem. Um, it's a, a global problem. It's something we are in this together, and we are raising our children on violence. Take a look at what your children are watching on television. So the whole idea of starting to teach peace and compassion and love at a young age from from birth is is amazing. So that that um, response that the Dalai Lama had given you about educating, starting to educate our children at a very young age, and then maybe trying to maybe if people stop watching all this violent programming, mm-hmm. it'll mm-hmm. actually. Nobody's watching it. They're not going to keep putting it on. <laughs> you know, it's going right. it's going to it's going to disappear from our society. So right. that is is so amazing. I'm I'm so happy that you um are sharing so much with us because it is very enlightening. And um do you have um like in, in finding that peace within that we're talking about, because that's really where it starts. It's from within mm-hmm. each of us to find that place of peace in this chaotic world where there, you know, are killings and there's, you know, all kind of craziness going on the news. I I don't watch the news. I just happen to hear. It, it's funny. I I don't watch the news and haven't watched the news since nine eleven. The the story about the young man that was arrested today in the high school, I happened to hear inside a store. I was shopping, mm. and the radio was on and the news was on. And it's like, and so that's why when I hear things like that that interest me, I go online and look it up. And then when I looked it up, I saw all these comments, how people were blaming the family, blaming the father, blame, you know, and I was like, yeah, so I I usually don't throw in my two cents, but I felt the need to on the uh, news blogs today. But news is something I don't even usually watch. But that kind of mm-hmm. like you said, it came to me. <laughs> that mm-hmm. that story came to me for a reason. So I said, okay, I'm gonna have to put my two cents in. But um, mm-hmm. it's so true how it really starts with us. It's like it Michael does. Jackson said, "The man in the mirror." 
You know, mm-hmm. uh, peace starts with us on an individual level. But get, can you share with us um, um, what uh, tips can you give people in today's society that are truly struggling to find that inner peace um, that will contribute to world peace? Absolutely. I'm really glad you asked that question. To me, one of the first things that contributes to inner peace is a mindfulness practice. And here's the great thing. I mean, yes, you know, the Dalai Lama talks about compassion education as critical, and it is essential that we teach our our kids and and um, youth uh, these lessons from an early age, not just so we have a more peaceful society, but that they have more peace um, as soon as they can in their lives. Because the stimulation is only going to continue to increase as our population increases. But here's the great thing. There's been so much research on mindfulness and compassion and um, the brain's neuroplasticity. What we have learned is that with mindfulness meditation, we can literally change the state of our brain in as little as, you know, two weeks. And so even if you're not a child, even if you are an adult and you struggle with a uh, lack of inner peace, you have the ability to change your mind. And when you change your mind through mindfulness practices, when you start to become the witness of your own thought processes, you start to then recognize that you can control where you choose to spend your thinking time, which then controls what you do in your life. And so let me be more specific. Mindfulness helps us become more aware of ourselves, our own inner relationship. And so let's say that somebody's in a corporate world, for example, and they're busy, 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 busy all the time and everything is so important. Um, and, but that person is starting to have health challenges and they have a, a family to raise at home and they're just busy all the time and they're recognizing that they're not at peace. If that person took you know, seven minutes a day, ten minutes a day and sat in meditation and started to observe their own thoughts, what they would notice is that they start to become more calm because they have learned that they can start to control their inner reality and your inner reality creates your outer experience. And so mindfulness is one of the greatest practices I know that can help us you know, first become aware that, oh my gosh, I have created chaos in my life or my life is chaotic. What can I do to shift the conditions so that I'm no longer either living like this or relating to my world like this? And so many of us grew up in chaotic environments. For me, it was growing up in a big family, you know, lots of things going on, lots of school, lots of productivity, lots of, lots of sports. For other people, they grew up in a violent environment, and so their fight-or-flight systems are constantly, you know, being aggravated. In all cases where there's that kind of chaos, you know, whether it's busy chaos or violent chaos, our nervous systems just aren't built to handle this. And so when we do our mindfulness practices, What's happening is we're learning how to calm our own mind, calm our thoughts, calm our nervous system so that we aren't in fight or flight all the time. And pretty soon we start to recognize that we can make different choices. And if nothing else, we can think about things differently. And so those choices, like, for example, you just brought up a great one, which is don't feed yourself the violence. You know, don't consume it. Don't watch it. Don't read it. Don't go buy a movie and endorse it by spending your money on it. You know, make specific choices for peace. Don't expose your body 
to that kind of violence because I don't care if you've ever been in a gunfight or not, you are affected by watching people kill each other on the screen. You're affected by watching somebody else get abused. We have to be careful of what we consume at all levels. Our, Our bodies are precious. These are our vessels for service. And the first thing, you know, thing we're responsible for is our state of mind. And, and, and I'll tell you, chaos is kind of a habit. I absolutely had a, ca- a habit of chaos. I loved being busy. I loved having things to do. But now I'm recognizing, wow, when I'm chaotic, not only does it affect how I work, but it affects people around me, sometimes in very negative ways. And I've received immediate feedback about that. So I've had to really work hard to shift that habit um, you know, and, and what I really want to bring home to people is don't wait until you have a cancer diagnosis. Don't wait until the universe has to give you, you know, a, a major hammer uh, signal, um, you know, through, a, through a, an experience in your body, through a pain, a back pain, a diagnosis, uh, a car wreck. Don't wait to start your mindfulness now. And don't think that you can't do it. Everybody who I've ever taught meditation to has said to me, oh, my, I can't control my brain. I'm always thinking. As if it's a badge of honor. It's not a badge of honor. It's, it's a badge of, of um, dis-ease, quite frankly. And so it is our responsibility to learn practices such as mindfulness to create a more inner peaceful experience. Now, along those same veins, that same vein of inner peace, mindfulness includes um, not only, you know, how often you sit in meditation to learn how to calm your brain and to calm your nervous system and to change your experience, you'll bring that through the rest of your life. You'll bring it to your work. It will start to impact people around you. Uh, my brother, high type A uh, executive at UCSF, never really meditated until a few years ago or maybe even a year ago. He had a series of life circumstances that were extraordinarily um, painful. And so I... I started to get him onto um, a program called Headspace. And, and as an executive, he really liked that program in particular. And now he said um, he's more calm. Uh, people who work for him say he, it, it, they, can ex- they experience him differently. They're really enjoying you know, working with him more. Not that he wasn't enjoyable before, but just a little bit um, high-strung. And his life is shifting. And this has been true for many people. So So the mindfulness elements, um, don't neglect that as a key base. And there are some wonderful meditation programs that can help you with that. The Insight Timer is a great free um, iPhone and Android app that you can use. And if you aren't used to meditating, you might start with guided meditations and then start to learn how to sit on your own and calm yourself. Um, Another great um, program, if you can afford to do it, is Muse. And Muse is a, is a meditation program that uses biofeedback to give you immediate responses on whether or not you are able to calm your mind. And it does so with immediate feedback in the form of uh, sounds when you meditate. And um, it's a really beautiful program, Muse, M-U-S-E, uh, Insight Timer, Headspace. Uh, and there's another program called Calm. There's so many free meditations online. There's no excuse not to meditate. Uh, so that's one thing. The second is, really being aware of what you consume. And we talked about violence and the consumption of violence through media and reading and movies and things like that. You have control over how much of that you consume or if you consume it at all. What you put into your body also matters. Um, I have noticed that for me personally, caffeine and sugar are two major triggers for me. 
um, as they say, what goes up must come down. <laughs> and um, sugar agitates our system. It's not healthy for us. Sugar actually feeds cancer. Uh, it is one of the most um, um, uh, harmful things that we can put in our bodies, and it's incredibly addictive, as addictive as cocaine. So the sooner you can get off of refined sugar, uh, the better your body will be and the more at peace your body will feel. Same with caffeine. Um, caffeine can agitate and take you to elevated levels, but then it can also crash you down. Um, certainly, uh, it, you know, if you have a, a coffee habit um, or caffeine habit, be mindful about how you reduce your caffeine intake so you don't cause undue suffering around that. And that who you spend time with matters. Who you spend time with matters a lot. Um, right. Consider those people that give you joy and make you peaceful. And then how you, uh, what your avocation is and what your hobbies are, are those things that bring you joy and happiness. And if not, you know, really reflect on what could you shift in your life to create more the conditions of peace around you because ultimately you're responsible for creating your life. You and the creator are co-creating it every time. What are you bringing to the table? What are you manifesting? And what are you telling the universe that you want to continue manifesting? Is it inner peace or is it chaos? So those are high level, and I'll stop there and and um, and let you uh, take it from well, here. Well, that that was actually very wonderful um, because I have gotten to the point in my life that the most important thing is my inner peace. Um, I wear four different hats, um, so um, always there's always something to do. There's always work to do, but um, more important than any work that I'm doing. I understand that most important is my inner peace. So if it's a beautiful day and I need to just go to the lake and sit, and that's where I I love to sit and meditate is by the water, Um, and it's only a few miles from my house. I go to the lake, I sit, I meditate, I read, I journal. Um, And that's, that's most important to me. That's more important than anything else I do is um, that meditation time, that peace, just making sure that I'm in a peaceful state so whatever I'm doing is going to be inspired from that peaceful state of being. So Right. um, Yeah. Right. And if I I could interject something, you just said something really important, Caroline, which is that from that place you'll be inspired. And inspired really means in spirit. So the other benefit of meditation, if it's not obvious to your listeners, and you've just articulated it beautifully, is that when you sit and you calm your mind, information comes in, information that is beyond what you yourself can think of on your own. That is inspired. That is in spirit. So if you cut the noise down, you'll be amazed at what you'll hear that will come in and shift your experience of the world. And you might get ideas just like I did in meditation from the Dalai Lama and Jesus that then manifest in your life. Never would I have had that guidance if I hadn't sat in meditation and received the messages that I was so profoundly downloaded. And and my life would be completely different if I hadn't taken that time. So I'm uh, sorry to interrupt you, but I think that no, is so no. important for people to hear. Yeah. Yes, it is. It is, truly. Um, and like you said, and also... You say some um, students of yours will say they can't quiet their minds. But you, whatever you say you can't do, you can't do. <laughs> what mm-hmm. you say you can do, you can do. So it's, it's in, in your belief system, too. So so many people, I say I teach piano. One of the things, one of the hats I wear is a piano teacher. I have students from the age of 4 to 16, and whenever I hear them say they can't, 
It's like, no, don't ever say you can't. You are putting up a mental block and you're making it, you're making that so by saying that you can't. So I say this to children, so this is something uh, adults. I know I was taught this as a child. My my aunt told me, don't ever say you can't, <laughs> because if you say you can't, then you can't. So we we are the creators of our reality, and we are the creators of our limitations by believing that we can't do something. Absolutely. Well said. So true. I cannot believe <laughs> that an hour has, I mean, it seems like we've been only talking for 10 minutes because <laughs> it, <laughs> it is, I, honestly, I've resonated with everything you said, and we must stay in contact via email. And um, with the, the Kyle Foundation, I can I can learn a lot. <laughs> so I am going to be in touch and picking your brain. <laughs> <laughs> Thank sure. you so much, Emily. Thank you so much. I appreciate you so much taking your time and and sharing so much wisdom with our listeners tonight. Um, so we are actually past an hour, but I, I have it set now, so Blog Talk Radio does not cut us off. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Emily. Did, was there any um, other thing you'd like to share with the audience before you leave? Really just deep gratitude for you, Caroline, for what you've created with Awake to Oneness Radio and for inviting me to be with you today. It's it's a pleasure to share with you. We learn from each other through our stories, and I just really want to bow down to you and thank you for using your time and energy in a way that brings more light to the world. Thank you so much, and thanks for inviting me today. And thank you. Same same ditto to you. Thank you for sharing your light, shining your light and paving the way for for programs like this. Um, especially in um the towards global peace and global oneness. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful weekend. Okay, thank you. You too, thank you. Okay. Bye bye. Bye.